Let's go to, the, let's go to Mark chapter 9. We're going to take a look at a passage of Scripture, 14 to 29. Our God reigns. So let me tell you what's going on. I feel as though I've gotten a glimpse of uh, where the Lord would like to take this church, and uh, that's, not, that's the easy part. So the more difficult part is to prepare for that eventuality. A lot of times, people in ministry don't do that. They just leap right in. So, but we have to prepare. Jesus had a season of preparation, the ministry of John the Baptist. Before Pentecost, there was a season of preparation. Uh, they were all together in one place. I strongly believe that this church is going to see and become to people a healing center in a lot more ways than just physical healing, but certainly including physical healing. And um, I want to prepare you for that. I feel burdened to do that. I think there's a, the, there's a right way to do that, and there's a, certainly a wrong way to do that. But we're going to, do a, we're going to take a biblical approach to this. At the same time, I want to accentuate throughout this month the things that are going on through this church on the global missions arena so that at the end of this month, uh, I can present you with a report in writing of the incredible things that are going on and have been going on around the world through this church. You see, you turn on the world news and you see the Afghan crisis and then you realize that we interface with that on some level. I mean, we have a partner in England who's going to be ministering to those people. So the first thing you have to do is you can get the news, it's usually bad news, and it's usually about the world, bad news around the world. Well, what are we about? We're about sharing the good news around the world. Let's change the news. Let's change the world, okay? So we have this opportunity to do that through Madison and her ministry and church there. And we have many, many opportunities elsewhere in the world. That's what we're going to do. All right, so we're getting prepared. Now, there is this phrase, and this phrase is used in the church all the time. I don't think anybody really means anything by it. But as far as I'm concerned, I would like to eradicate the phrase so it no longer exists. It's like you're having a conversation with somebody and somebody's sharing a testimony of somebody, you know, they, got, uh, they were saved or the prodigal came home or they were healed in some way or a family, was, their marriage was reconciled and it's just this incredible testimony. And then what typically happens is the Christian, the believer, the disciple, even the person that prayed them through that whole process uses this phrase. Oh, it's just, it's my pet peeve. It's just like I want to sock them right in the face when they say this. After all this faith, after all this process, after all this discipleship, after all this mentorship, after all this intercession, the whole thing's wrapped up in this beautiful bow and it's presented to them and the prayer is answered and then we say, that's unbelievable. It happens all the time. That's unbelievable. No, it is believable, my friend. It's believable. We just went through the whole process. Let's not say that's unbelievable. And sometimes I think... We believe, but it's almost as though sometimes by some of the things we say, we reserve a little bit of part of us to say, you know what, that's unbelievable. So let's tackle that, shall we, today, as we look at Matthew chapter 9, verse 14 through 29. So Jesus is at, how'd you like to be at this meeting, the Mount of Transfiguration. He's got Pete, Jim, and John with him. What an incredible encounter that must have been. And they're moving away from that, and, and that's where we start this passage. It says, when they came to the other disciples, in other words, when they returned from the Mount of Transfiguration, 
they saw a large crowd around them and the teachers of the law arguing with them. So you go to the Mount of Transfiguration, you have this incredible otherworldly encounter, still reeling from that situation, still trying to process and digest what that was all about, and now we come back to reality. We got these disciples, they're returning to the rest of them, and they're arguing with the teachers of the law. Wow, back to reality. And then, boom, the teachers of the law are arguing. Arguing about what? Well, they're arguing about this healing, and um, they're arguing about faith, and let's get into it. They're pontificating. Some of them are pontificating with their academic uh, uh, input into the scenario, what can and cannot happen. They're conversing with one another. They're debating with one another. They're sharing their opinions about a situation with one another. And nobody's really certain. Everybody wants to say something. Everybody wants to be heard. Everybody has a voice. And nothing's really getting accomplished. There's just not a lot of consistency. There's not a lot of consistent, unified thoughts on this whole subject. They're all over the map. There is confusion. They're arguing. Could Jesus drive out an evil spirit? They're probably arguing about that. Could his disciples do the same? They're probably arguing about that. And why weren't his disciples successful in their attempt to drive out this evil spirit? I know they're arguing about that. Everyone's got an opinion. Then it goes like this. As soon as all the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder and ran to greet him. (laughs) Yeah, he does look pretty appetizing when he walks up. Gee, do you mind if I leave the argument and the bickering and the debate so that I can go over and be in wonder of this man? That's really their two choices. What do you think they're going to do? They were overwhelmed with wonder. Wow. The allure and the attractiveness, not physical attractiveness, but the attractiveness of this man, the magnetism of this man so superseded what they were involved in, what they were entrenched in, what they were arguing about, that they had to look at him. They had to turn their eyes, as we just sang, upon him. Overwhelmed with wonder. Now, I don't know where you are in your walk. And I don't know if anything is bolstering wonder in your life or if you've put yourself or have been put in a spiritual climate that is diminishing your wonder in life. Whatever the case may be, be aware of it this morning. Are you, has a ministry squelched your wonder? Has your scenario, your your lot in life, the current context of what you're dealing with, squelched your overwhelmingness of God? What has bolstered your wonder of God and what is diluting it? Be aware of that. Make some changes in either direction, whatever's appropriate. But we ought to walk with, even, even those of you who have walked with the Lord a lot longer than I have, you should want to, if not really crave, being in wonder of God, the, the wonderness of God, the wonderfulness of God, that you are just enjoying him and the wonder of him and looking to him has its enjoyment to it as well, far more than bickering or arguing or debating. Where is the wonder of God in your life right now? Because a man who has a wonder of God, who sees God as wonderful, who's overwhelmed with wonder, hasn't been smashed and smooshed down by the cares of this world, the distractions and anxiety and all these other things. Maintain your wonder, friend. 
Maintain your wonder. If you've never had a wonder of God, if he's been some concept, some ritualism, some, some entity, some, some object, some idol, where's the wonder in that? There ought to be a wonder, right? There ought to be the, a girlish wonder, a boyish wonder. My wife was showing me something the other day, how things have changed. It was a picture of a kid pushing a lawnmower in his dad's front yard. And it says, this is what a GoFundMe page used to look like. <laughs> like, there's, <laughs> when you're a little boy or little girl in the summertime, just getting up, knowing you had about two and a half months of, of just play. This is back when you could go out, out, outside, remember that? You could go outside, and you didn't have to have a Secret Service agent. You could, like, play. I used to put crab apples on the back of these limbs, and I used to sling those things about 300 feet. They used to hit people on a baseball field. I threw them so far they could never see me. That's fun. That's wonder. I used to, you should get points at school, or my wife told me that, that you could get a free small pizza if you read so many books. I forget books. I read the back of cereal boxes, man. That was my wonder. And how I was going to hold that thing open, though it's full, and get my fist down in there to get the prize before my mom saw me. That was wonder. See, where is the boyishness? Where is the girlishness? Where is the innocence of a walk with God who likes to laugh and have fun and blow your mind? Where's your wonder? Wonder where your wonder is and go find it. We need it here because we're going to be bewildered and wondering what God is going to do next here, and I don't want it to take you off guard. Where's your wonder of God? If you have very little wonder and very, you're not very overwhelmed by God, change your dialogue with him. Or have some dialogue with him. And ask him to blow you away. Ask him to show you things that that are his nature that you're not used to. Show me another side. The word behold in the Bible, behold the Lamb of God, means to hold up a diamond to the light and look at all the different facets coming of, of brilliance coming off of that diamond. Some of us have just held God up and it's like a, a small pebble and we're only getting one aspect of him. And that one's been drilled in us for so many years we don't know there's others. There are many others. Many others, be, be, be wonderful with me, God, that I may wonder about you. I mean, I would stay on that prayer request with him. I don't care how many months it took until I had a giddiness about worship, that I had a, a, a frivolity, a, a lightheartedness about honoring him with my life. Stay there. Because without that, you're not much really good in other areas. You gotta have fun. You've got to be attractive. These people are bickering and arguing with one another about what can and cannot be done based on who knows what was written in some book somewhere. The manifestation of the book walks up. Come on. Where's your wonder? Shouldn't there be some sort of imagination involved in all of this? Like, now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to his part, or power that is at work in us. I've told you this before, but imagination, the whole concept of it got stolen from the church, ripped off, man. I mean like grand theft by Eastern 
religions and mysticism and all these other things, but I think God wants you to imagine what it's like to walk with him in a whole new way, in a fresh way, in a fresh friendship. It's, he, he wants you to think bigger than you're actually thinking so that the poor person who doesn't think big about God, this is tragic, seems to get what they expect of him. And if it's a low level of expectation, it's a low level. And you only see one aspect of him. He's big, he's grand, he's huge, he's majestic, he's splendid, he's love. I mean, let's get our thinking up. I have to prepare this church to think beyond where you're thinking, believe beyond where you're believing because there's a freight train coming through here in the near future and God's gonna start to do things among us and show us things and remind us things that are in the Bible and we can't be caught off guard by that. We have to actually be wondering about it, thinking about it, praying about it, imagining it, and then being overwhelmed by it before it ever happens. What do you, and then Jesus says, What are you arguing with them about, he asked. A man in the crowd answered, Teacher, I brought you to my son who was possessed by a spirit that has been robbed him of his speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. It's horrible. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive it out, but they could not. But they could not. Jesus is really clear about what his disciples will and will not do. Now, granted, he hasn't risen from the dead yet, and an apostolic mantle hasn't rested upon them yet, but he's clear. So be clear as we fast forward to these days. John 14 and 12, very truly I say to you, I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing And they will do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father. Incumbent upon us is this need, this call, this seriousness about wonderment. And how we pray and how we minister to other people ought to, I would say, ought to be in line more with doing more than Jesus than not doing anything that Jesus did or saying that Jesus could never do that today. That doesn't play. So we have to be in this mindset that, like, do you not know, you're, this is the priesthood of all believers, this, this ministry is actually gonna be happening through you. You're gonna be taught and trained, and there's gonna have preaching, there's gonna be encouragement. You're gonna be the one ministering this love of Christ, and it's gonna be greater than Christ. And then he says this, you unbelieving generation. God, I wouldn't wanna hear that. You unbelieving generation, Jesus replied, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? You really don't want to hear that. Bring the boy to me. How long? How long? Seems a bit frustrated. So they brought him. When the spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into a convulsion He fell to the ground and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked the boy's father, how long has he been like this? From childhood, he answered. It has often thrown him into the fire or water to kill him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. 
If you can, said Jesus. If you can. Like, you're wondering if I can. Well, let's settle that. I can. I mean, he's saying, yes, I know as a father this must be incredibly frustrating, incredibly painful, and mind-blowing in a whole nother way. I mean, the level of uh, frustration, the level of pain, the level of, of whatever it would be to know that your son was that way and could be at any time thrown into a fire. I mean, this, this is a whole new level of anxiety in parenthood. And he says, uh, he says, if you can, said Jesus. You're doubting if I can. And then he says this, everything is possible for one who believes. Everything is possible for one who believes. Sometimes these things, and you've heard me do this, I invert it so that I can understand it better. If I've heard something over and over and over again and it hasn't really set in, I say it in another way. Not everything is possible for one who believes not. It is best to believe before you see, hear, and touch. Jesus had to deal with this. I think that these people will believe once they see it. Well, let me just tell you, that is not cool. Faith is not about seeing something and then believing. If if that's what you're looking for, you're not operating by faith. And this had to be his frustration. Like, when the prophecy started to come, the people started to realize, then they started calling him the Messiah. They're now attributing to him the things that he now is capable of doing and will do among them, but they're really not going to believe it until they see it. That's not, that's not the Bible. Okay, that's not, that's, not what, that's not maturity. That's not what we're called to do. Faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. What we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. Can you foster a dialogue with God on a personal level? I'm asking you, will you? I'm asking you, not can you, I know you can't. Will you? Will you foster a dialogue with God that is more steeped in wonder and imagination and being bewildered by him? And will you operate and and walk in a faith that's not necessitated by sight? There's nothing wrong with me asking you that. In fact, it's my job to ask you that. Can you get to the point, if you're not there yet, where you can believe something that you haven't seen, ever seen, and that seeing isn't a qualifier that it actually happened? Because God is capable. That's the kind of spiritual family sending prayers, intercession, consultation, resources around the world needs to operate. See, it doesn't do us any good to write a check and send it to XYZ ministry if the church isn't believing. The the check is evidence that we believe that God will do that through you. We don't, you know, we vet people. We don't just, you know, sit around and just send checks out. You know that, right? I mean, we look into situations just like what's wise, what's a good stewardship. We, We labor over these decisions. Do we believe that these people believe that God will do what God says he wants to do through them, and there's no evidence of it. You've got to take a risk in this life sometime. Christianity is about taking, like, steps of faith, not based on what you see. Immediately, the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. Wait a minute. He he just says, I do believe. Help me overcome 
my unbelief. What is that? When Elisha wanted to follow Elijah, he burned his plow before he left. When I first got involved in ministry, um, I was an insurance agent, and every year you have to get these uh, continuing ed, you have to take, you know, keep your license. So it's really strange. The first time you come home, and you're now in vocational ministry, Thomas, you probably understand this. First time you come home, the day before you were an insurance agent, now you come home, and your kids look at you, and they go, you're a pastor? And I think under the breath, they're going, gosh, I hope dad gets that, keeps that license renewed. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, who knows? Who knows where this is going? I do believe, but help me overcome my unbelief. Unbelief. Do you believe? And to what extent? What do you believe God will and can and will do. Your prayer life probably reveals the level of belief. What do you believe? The first thing you got to do is say, is this, is this biblical? Because don't get on board with believing something that's not biblical. If it's biblical, then we'll move forward. All right, now let's believe. When Jesus saw that crowd was running to the scene to rebuke the impure spirit, you deaf and mute spirit, he said, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. The spirit shrieked, convulsed him violently, and came out. The boy looked so much like a corpse that many said he's dead, but Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him to his feet, and he stood up. There is, um, there is this movement. I've been studying all the healings of Jesus here uh, for years, I have, actually, and, and, and revisiting each one of these encounters and looking for every nuance of every reason that these people are healed. And, and, and here's what I've come to, come to uh, conclude so far. Sometimes, some people know him, some people don't know him. Some people know his name, some people believe in him, some people don't believe in him. Sometimes he's physically present, sometimes he's not even close to being physically present. There's as many different ways that healing and deliverance come about in his ministry, almost as many as the encounters, of which there are 26. But here's the thing that you always notice. It is the motivation behind the prayer is, is not really faith. It is faith, but equal to, if not exceeding faith, is compassion and love. If we're in a, if we're in a group and uh, we're having a small group meeting and someone has this prayer and they need healing in their body, typically what people do is like, get in to pray for it. You know, who has the greatest burden? That's the first thing you ask. Who brought this up, and why did they bring it up, and how long have they been praying about it, and is this deep down in them, or is this some whim that we're going to use to close out the meeting? Who's got the burden? Who's got the burden to pray for that person to be healed? Who's got the burden for that person to be whole? That's what we start looking at. So it's not about asking for the faith as much as asking for the compassion, asking for the empathy. See, the earnest prayer, the, the real prayer, the effectual prayer is the one that's spot on authentic because it's married up with a deep-seated longing and empathetic compassion, if not a visceral compassion for that person to be whole. That's what God looks for. You only need a mustard seed of faith. You need a bucket load of compassion. 
You gotta, you gotta care. <laughs> you, you, know, you can't go through the motions. It's better not, sometimes I think, but will you pray for this person? Sometimes someone asked me to pray for someone in their family for, for healing on the telephone. And I, I thought, okay, I'm gonna schedule this, but I don't really know this person. And, I, and, and, and frankly, I don't really feel like praying for him today. I made it for a week away. That gave me a week to prepare for this. You see what I'm saying? One's a, re- a ritualistic duty you check off your to-do list. The other is rooted and established in a, a real sense of despair that this person is going through this. I, like I got to conjure that up with God before I pray for the person. Sometimes it's better not to pray if you're indifferent. Wait until you actually really want something to happen. You really care for somebody to be right or in, in, in whatever this thing is. A lot of people say, God's not answering by prayers. Well, pray when you really mean it. Pray when you really want it. He's a father looking and listening to his children. You dads know what happened when your kids come to you and you want something, but they got to want it. There's got to be a compassion and empathy. This is the, the biggest thing we need to be infused with going forward. In this indifferent, callous world, the person that God's gonna use is is the person of faith, yes, that believes all things are possible, yes, who doesn't have any unbelief, yes, but more than that, wow. They're brought to tears, Nehemiah was brought to tears, to mourning, to weeping, to fasting. You got to really, (laughs) you've got to invite this into your life, not not protect yourself from it, you've got to invite it. That's the prayer minister. That's, that's where healing happens in a church. You can't pray for somebody in the same manner the world would pray for them and expect the same results, or different results. As Jesus had gone indoors, disciples asked him privately, why couldn't we drive it out? And he replied, this, this kind can come out only by prayer and fasting. Prayer and fasting. The principle here is, this isn't, it's not just about praying. What happens when you fast? You want to eat something. You really want something. You're hungry and thirsty for something. Jesus' whole entire ministry, which you and I are still, there's so much meat on the bone, you and I are still eating off of that bone right now. Never took place publicly until he, he came to the Mount of Temptation, until he was tempted, until he was thirsty, until he was weak, until he was absolutely emptied, until he was emaciated, until he was at the end of himself. That's when his ministry began. And that's the principle here. If you want to see things happen in certain people's lives, you have to put yourself in their situation. You've got to see what they see. You've got to really love them, really want to see something happen. You need to come to the end of your own self and your own issues, your own wants, your own desires, and you need to be as Christ-like as you possibly can and let Christ pray through you. Now we're getting somewhere. Who's already wanted that, long for that. If, if he has to prepare for his ministry, why don't we have to prepare for ours? It's not about eloquence of prayer. It's not about what you pray necessarily. It's about the motivation behind it. 
has to be something that was affected by a lack. Lack of what? Well, fasting is the principle. A disciple of Christ does three things. Let me boil it down for you. The Sermon on the Mount is really clear. A disciple of Christ does three things. They give, they pray, and they fast. And they do all three anonymously. So as to draw zero attention to themselves, they give, they pray, they fast. And when they fast, they put oil on their head so no one knows they're fasting. They give, they pray, they fast. A lot of people say there was so much that happened in the New Testament in the first century that's not happening now. They give, they pray, they fast. They give, they pray, they fast. You know, a lot of those miracles and the apostles' stuff were done in the first century, but not in the 21st. They give, they pray, they fast. They met together, they were in one accord, one mind, one heart. They gave, they prayed, they fasted. After Jesus gone indoors, said, why couldn't we drive that out? Some only come by praying faster. Let me conclude with this. Psalm 145 and 4. One generation compends your works to another, and they tell of your mighty acts. I referenced this earlier, but every time Jesus did something, there's an upward movement to it. An upward movement. I say to you, little girl, get up. He's, he's at the town, it's at city gate in Nain, and he puts his hand on the coffin, and he says, I, says, I say to you, boy, get up. Wherever you are in your walk with Christ, and you want to know what the will of God is, it is to lift you up beyond where you are, ultimately to a rock that is higher than yourself. He wants you to a rock that is higher than yourself. He wants you operating on a level, loving on a level, being sensitive on a level that's beyond your own ability to a rock higher than yourself. He's the lifter of your head. He wants to pull you up. He wants to pull you out of the darkness into his marvelous light. He wants to raise up your countenance. He wants to raise up your opportunity. He wants to promote you. Everything he does is up. He's the lifter of your head, the glory and the lifter of your head. He wants you up, up, up. Attitude, up, out of the mire, out of the complaining, out of the whining, out of the confusion, out of the depression, up, 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 up. He's he's all about up. We're all about ministry partnerships that are up, up, up as a church. Upward movement. Next generation thinking. That's why Nepal with the 5,000 young people, next generation thinking. That's why we're ministering to these people in Franklin. Up out of your addiction. Up out of your alcoholism. Up out of your opiates. Up out of your legal issues. Up out of your financial issues. Up out of your broken families. Up out of your broken marriages. Up, up, up. Baptized a guy not long ago and he texts me every now and again. I'm at 41 days. I'm at 48 days. He goes, I'm, I got past 50 days with no nicotine. Up, up, up. That's it. That's what we do here. We're up. There's a guy down at Sky Valley here recently. I just heard from Pastor Steve. He went to have a serious skin cancer melanoma removed. And we got to the doctor. It was gone. Up, I believe. Up. It, it wasn't there. He left, went to lunch. Woman sat in that pew over there, I don't know how many months ago, 
staring 24 months of chemo treatment in the face. Averted, none, done, no chemo. And two consecutive Sundays we prayed in this place for a young man that sits over there that, to breathe. He couldn't go to bed at night. He was afraid he was going to die. He couldn't keep his oxygen level up. He's breathing on his own now, up. I believe that. I believe that melanoma falls off a person's body. I believe that people overcome this. I believe that chemo can be averted. I believe that an aneurysm that's too big for surgery two days later is too small not to do it. I do believe that. But we we have to not only believe it, we have to want it. We have to want it. I remember I prayed for this guy one time and a pituitary gland disappeared in his brain. He has to go back and have it monitored. That was 20 years ago. Man, I wanted that. I wanted that for him so bad. I wanted that more than I wanted anything when I prayed with him. Shared a vacation with him the other day, and I said, whatever happened with that? He goes, yeah, I just go in for checkups. You could feel the uncertainty. You could feel the family upset. I never forget that. Ever now and again, maybe you've done this, you, you, you hit a gear of compassion you never had before and you, you don't want to leave that place. That's when you want to ask God for things out of that reservoir of wants, of, of selflessness, of empathy. I believe people are sitting, uh, I believe, I know, I see it. People are coming out of drug addictions on this, on this mountain through this church. I've seen it. Being set free from alcohol, crystal meth, nicotine. I see severe treatments not being necessary anymore. And then in other ways, I see us beginning to have these opportunities to make profound differences in people seeking asylum and refugees and the persecuted people in Iran. And you don't, you don't see it every day, and you're not in it every day, and you're not on every Zoom call, but it's almost as like we got promoted from fourth string to first string, and somehow or another, we're, it's game day sometimes. And this church, as small as we are, as out of the limelight as we are, as under the radar as we are, God just says, come on, let's go. Come on. We're gonna take this spiritual family, and we're gonna put them in this situation so that you just look at it long enough, friend, you're gonna really, really wonder. I've been mega church, and I've been in the small mountain church. Small mountain church is agile and, and mobile, and when resource can go places others can't go in a hurry. It's just so much we can accomplish. Yeah, I believe that. I believe the people that are coming to Christ in this community in our youth group are people a lot of people have given up on. I believe prodigals are coming home. I believe that you and your personal life are making a difference. I believe it's a priesthood of all believers. I believe the fact that on that sign you'll find no man's name when you come up that driveway because unlike any other church I've ever seen, you'll find no man's name on that sign. Why? Because it's about your ministry, not mine. It's about your influence. We're geographically spread out. I wish I had you seasonal people for 12 months. This would be dangerous. It would be so dangerous. 
This is going to be a healing center for people. And the one thing you'll never hear around here, not even by mistake, that's unbelievable. I hope it's the last time I ever say it. You're going to go about your business this week and do your thing. You call this home, your church is still at work with Afghani women, children, Iranian women and children, students in this area, children needing foster care, addicts and alcoholics. You're playing golf, we're still at work. Collectively, we're still believing. Collectively, we're still seeing God do things. We're in Tokyo teaching music to people in a language that is universal and causing them to put down hundreds of years of ancestry and heritage and belief to acknowledge that Jesus is Christ. That's what we're doing. And we're doing it because we've all made a decision to believe. But belief isn't enough. Put some action to it. Belief not necessarily based on sight. If you're here today and you don't have your elements with you, I encourage you, raise your hand, we'll bring some to you. And if you're at home, you have a couple minutes, this first Sunday of the month, we take Holy Communion. There's a lot of powerful forces in the earth, in the world system. Armies, ideologies, false religions, demonic forces. There's a lot of movements. There's a lot of uh, chatter. There's cultural issues that abound. and They're all loud and they're all powerful. They can all influence us. And we can conform to them if we're not careful. But there is something uh, where power is concerned that trumps them all. (laughs) One drop of the blood of Christ has more power inherent to it than a combined totality of every man-made false intention, false teaching, false philosophy. Suffice to say, the power is in the blood. You can dream up any kind of God you want in any kind of culture you want, you can build temples and worship them, any, it or him or her or any way you want to. But nowhere in the mind of man was this ever a concept that God would so love the world that he'd give his only begotten son. Man has his Babel and his tower to build. Jesus humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on the cross. Your attitude should be the same as should mine of Christ Jesus who became the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to grasp, but made himself nothing. That has such a compassion and such a love for the frailty of the human dilemma that he allowed himself to perish and to be forsaken by his father for the first time in all eternity they were separate on account of you when he took upon your sin upon him and my sin upon him. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
And the answer is because of me and because of you, because of my sin, because of yours, that filled that pristine lamb without spot or blemish, that a holy father would have to separate himself. This is the broken body of Jesus Christ, broken for you, Let's partake of the bread. Even the demons know God and know scripture and they shudder. <laughs> they see Christ from afar and they cower on the ground and beg him to leave the area or throw him into the pigs. The fallen angels, the demons in this world that are prevalent in various areas and intense in various areas are fully aware of the power of Christ. It concerns me at times that they may now be fully, more fully aware than we ourselves sometimes. Let's not let that happen. This is the blood of Jesus Christ shed for, for the forgiveness of your sins. Drink ye all of it. Let's pray, shall we? Lord, I pray for compassion. In my own life, in my own heart, in the life of this church, in the hearts and minds of this church. We believe. We act upon our belief. We confess a belief that's not based on sight, sound, or hearing. We have a trust in you and for you and with you. If you would see it clear to send people to this place that are lonely and disenfranchised, tired, broken, diseased, and sick. Anxious in any way, shape, or possible. Would you prepare us to receive them in such a way that they will encounter not us, but you. Not our love, but yours. Not our wisdom, but yours. Not our touch, but yours. Not the, the spirit we came into this world with, but your Holy Spirit. Would you ready us for that eventuality that we may minister healing in every way, shape, or form to those you send? Prepare us for such, will you? Please. In Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen. Let's meditate on that for a moment.